Oh, but I've been AWOL a lot. I haven't been here a lot the last five months because my wife, Reagan, was diagnosed with cancer back in February, and it started a crazy journey um, of, of treatment and figuring things out, and she's been in, I've been with her most of the time in Phoenix since then, and she's still there, and um, it's been good being back for a couple of weeks, and she's going to have a big evaluation in a couple of weeks, but I appreciate everybody has been praying with her, standing with her. Um, I got a picture from just yesterday. She's she's uh, lost her hair. She's there in the middle there, but um, she's she is fighting like I can't I can't tell you what a fighter she is, and so she is hoping to come back. We'd hoped that she would come back this week for a little break, but at this point she's it seems like it's gonna be better for her to stay for a little longer. So we're just we're just walking this process. But appreciate everybody standing standing with us in this. I wanted before we dive into the message, we're gonna have um, I just want to introduce it, and then we're gonna have a little discussion at your tables. But we've been walking through the book of Acts. The fifth book in the New Testament, the Acts, it's short for Acts of the Apostles, or it also could be known as Acts of the Holy Spirit. But it's really the actions of, of the Holy Spirit and the early believers as this Jesus movement, this movement of followers of King Jesus was just getting started. Thanks, Michael. You're the man. I'll put that on in a minute. Um, but we've been hearing the story of how the church, the, this movement, and really when you hear the word church, we maybe have like such religious imagery that we can miss out on what this really is. That it's a movement of people who encountered God in a powerful way that changed their life and they believed it was going to change the world. And so this movement that started very small but really just exploded after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and after he went back to heaven. And so we're in chapter 13, which is really a key chapter because it's up until now, the message of Jesus has been spreading, but it's been spreading primarily through people of, of Jewish descent, the nation of Israel, although there have been some outcroppings into Gentiles, into non-Jewish people, people who didn't have the tradition of the Old Testament. Um, but this is the first place it, where it's intentional where a group of people realize, man, it's not just supposed to be an accident, but we need to take this message of Jesus to the whole world. And they start to do that. And so we see this, this little band of people in this, this city of Antioch in Syria that begin to go out. And it's the beginning of what's the, the, the most influential movement in history. We look at the first century to where they're just, you know, from, from just a, a few dozen people at the beginning, and hundreds and thousands, maybe a few thousand now where we're at. But this now has, has spread to billions of people. And this is, so we're going to see what, what was in these people and what is the message that impacts the whole world. And so before we go there, I just want you to talk about two questions at your table. And they should be on the screen here. The first one is this. If you wanted to start a movement with two people, who would you choose? And why? All right? If you want to start a movement to change the world, you got to pick two people. It's like, you know, elementary school recess. You're picking your team. Who are you going to pick? And why are you picking them? And then the second question is, is rather different, but it's define, define eternal life. What is your definition of eternal life? We're going to take just about five minutes. So um, just think about that and then talk about it with yourselves, and I'll jump back up here. Mm. Feeling alive like while you're yeah, very good. 
I like that. We're going to get into this more, but that's important, that eternal life is after we die, and it's you know, being with God, and, but it, it's intended to start now and experience not only a quantity of life, but a quality of life, God kind of life that he has for us. But there's more. So I got a lot. Um, so let's just pray. God, help us. I pray as we, as we read through this chapter that you would speak to us. Pray that the things that you want us to hear and be impacted by, that you would cause that to happen. Give us ears to hear. And just thank you. There's so much inspiration, life-changing inspiration in your word. Well, we trust you to bring it to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to, well, before we dive in there, uh, one of our, kind of our premise today, looking at this Jesus movement, is that every movement in history is fueled by a message. Messages fuel movements. And I kind of hate to bring this up, but in the last week, world news is the withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan. And I hate to bring it up because it's really so depressing. I have a number of friends and people in this room who've served in Afghanistan, served nobly. I have a number of friends who've been at K-State who are Afghan and who have, who have studied here and who love their country. And um, I think it'd be, I, I, it'd, it'd be hard to think of a defeat in U.S. history that it was more pronounced than this defeat. And we spent 20 years in this nation trying to turn things around. And it seems to be in worse shape now than when we started. But let's not, so there's a lot we can talk about that. But on the flip side, look at, man, what was the, how did the Taliban defeat the strongest superpower in the world? And I think it comes back to this, that it was a group of people who deeply believed their message. They believed something so deeply that they were willing to, to fight, they were willing to organize, they were willing to suffer, sacrifice, and endure at an incredible level to the point to where they, they came to the place that they're in now. And their message is not one that I agree with, although I, I do deeply respect the sincerity and the, even the devotion to God. That is, that is mixed in with a lot of this. But there's a belief that the Taliban have from their, their religious beliefs that the only way that you can know that you're going to spend eternity in paradise and not hell is by dying in jihad, dying in holy war. So that's a pretty good motivation to fight for your cause because there's no other way to be sure. That's the only way to be sure. And furthermore, that if you die in, in holy war and you're a man, then you got 70 virgins at your disposable, disposal. And it was just this whole image, this whole idea, this whole message that, wow, if, this, if we give our lives for this cause to the, and give our whole life and die, then this is what it leads to. And there's no other way to be guaranteed of this eternity. Now, like I said, I don't believe that message, but... The Christian movement is fueled by a different message, I believe a better message, a more life-giving message, a more inclusive message, a more message of hope for the world. Um, it's interesting that you know, the, the, the Christian message has, has typically spread 
not through the sword, as Islam has, but through people bringing a message of hope to people. Everywhere where the gospel is today, there used to be people who were fiercely opposed. They had other gods, other belief systems, but people came with the message of, of King Jesus and Jesus being Savior and King. And things changed, and the culture changed. And this is a message we, I believe God wants us to deeply be impacted by personally and then be able to, to bring it to others. And so I believe that is what we see in the, the characters in this chapter. Um, so Acts chapter 13. Now there were, starting from the beginning, we're going to read a lot of this, but not, not all of it. Um, we're going to skip some of it. I'll summarize a little bit of it. We're going to read a lot of this chapter. Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Yeah, I almost just like was going to talk about just these two verses because there's enough here to focus on. It's like what kind of people fuel the, the movements, fuel, fuel the, the Jesus movement? And there's, there's a lot we could say here. We see these are people who were devoted. They, they loved God's word. They were gifted. There were prophets and teachers, and those the Bible talks about those being spiritual gifts that God gives to certain people. And so they had spiritual gifts, but they also had developed those gifts to the place where they were using them. And they developed them because they loved God's word. And they loved, they loved how God's word changes everything. I was, um, and God's word, a lot of us in this room would say, yeah, God's word changes everything. Uh, about a week ago, my, my wife Reagan was in a pretty, very intense day, very dark day. And she pulled up to the place where she was getting treatment in Phoenix. And before she got out of the car, this college-age guy, who she didn't know, came up to her window and kind of like waved at her. And she rolled down the window. And he said, hey, I just, I felt like I wanted to, I felt like God wanted me to pray for you. Would that be okay? And she was, this guy was kind of like, wow, is this like, this sounds like something our students do in Manhattan. This is kind of crazy, like him full circle in Phoenix. But he prayed for her, and he basically said, I just feel like God, he gave a very encouraging message to her that he felt like the Holy Spirit had put on his heart for her. And, and it concurred with the other things that we've, we've felt along the way as we've been walking this, this battle, walking this journey. Senses of just God having a purpose for her and bringing her through this and um, and it's amazing that those words, words from God, whether people hearing from the Holy Spirit directly and speaking it to you, which is prophecy, or the Scripture itself and the Holy Spirit making it alive and coming to you, that brings life, and that changes anything. So these were people who valued God's Word. They were devoted to it. They were studying it. They were listening to God. They were worshiping the Lord or that... Um, Literally, it could be translated, sometimes it's translated, they were ministering to the Lord, so they were worshiping, but also just saying, God, what do you want us to do? How can we serve you? Um, they were fasting and praying. They were also diverse. You know, I love this. God always loves to work with diverse people. They were diverse socioeconomically. There are people from all backgrounds. We see this, this one guy grew up with Herod, who was the highest Jewish official in Israel. 
So he was from upper classes. We've got people from different parts of the world. You know, Paul was from Turkey. Barnabas was from Jerusalem. Uh, Lucius from, from Cyrene, which was Algeria in northern Africa. Simeon, we don't know where he was from, but his name was Niger, which means black. There's a country in Africa called Niger, so that's a pretty good clue of the general area he was from. And so we have this really diverse group of people. So God loves to, to, to work with devoted people, diverse people, people who, who love his word, people who, who find their giftedness that he has for them. Um, but then this message came and it said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So God said, hey, listen, I have a mission. Great things are happening here in Antioch, in Syria, but this message needs to go to the whole world. So set these two men apart. They're going to go out. They're going to be the first missionaries to intentionally go into the world. And it's interesting, these were, like, these were the top leaders. These were the top two leaders in the church in, in Antioch. But God said, yeah, that's who I want for my mission. Let's, let's send them out. Uh, so let's continue reading here. We're going to get more into what was the message that they went with. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which was the seaport there in Syria. And from there they sailed to the island of Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as the city of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or son of Jesus, or son of Joshua would have been the Jewish name, Hebrew name. He was with the proconsul, proconsul, which was a very high up Roman official. There were only a, a few proconsuls in the Roman Empire. So this was like the governor of the area. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. It's interesting that. Early on, these messengers of this message, they find the most influential people in their region, and that's who they're bringing the message to. Sergius Paulus was the highest Roman official who was there. He had this Bar-Jesus dude who was a Jewish false prophet, so he was a, somewhat of a religious leader. And, but also, we think of like the word that goes on, it's, it's like a magician, which is like the magi, and that was more like astrology. So it was kind of like pseudoscience. So if you can and think about our world. So this was like the highest political official, high religious leaders, but also encompassing kind of the, the scientific consensus of their day. And this is who the message was coming to. Um, verse 8, but Elemis the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, Oppose them. Um, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. I wouldn't recommend that you, you use their, you know, be careful about <laughs> these exact tactics, but just be sure, you know, just be sure if you're going to do this. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Dude, that's pretty gutsy, I tell you. He's going to like this, this magician who everybody's intimidated by and respects and has this spiritual power. He just looks him in the eye and says, hey, you're a son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness, and you're going to be blind. What happens? Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Wow. This, like, influential leader is instantly humbled, and he needs people to lead him about because he can't do anything. Then the pro-council believed. Heck yeah. I mean, I think there's good reason to believe. You know, okay, there's something behind this message. These, guys, these men are bringing something that is upheaval, bringing upheaval to the, the strongest religious authority that I know. Then he believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So wow, we see this, this message comes, and the highest political leader believes, because he sees the teaching of the Lord. I'm telling you, the teaching of the Lord is not just, oh, Jesus was a really nice guy, and you should be nice too. You know, that's, we oftentimes think that Christianity is something like that. Or it wasn't even, you know, Jesus wants to be your personal savior and help you have a nice relationship with God so you can be with him all the time. No, it, that doesn't really like equate with the message that we hear here. There was something, there was a message of authority. It was not about them, it was about Jesus. The message was about who Jesus is. And so the first part of this, this message, I'm just going to give two like basic sentences today about what this message of the movement is. The first one is that Jesus is the true king of the world. Jesus is the true king of the world. The message of the gospel, the message of the movement, the Jesus movement, is that Jesus is the authority. He's the ruler over all the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't matter how much power they seem to have. It doesn't matter how established something is. It doesn't matter who believes what. There is another king. And he is above all of that. And so the teaching of the Lord, when Sergius Paulus saw it, it was like, wow, there's a power here. There's an authority. It comes up against our status quo. And what our culture says is the highest authority. And it says no. There is another king above all this. Um, so we're gonna. So Kanye had it right, right? Jesus is king. There's, he's, he was onto something there. This is the message, right here. I love how like they went straight to the top. You know, a lot of times we're like, okay, who's like the easiest pickings, right? Like, who's the most insecure, less sure, least sure of themselves person? Like, let's try to like maybe maybe they'll follow Jesus because they're so desperate. And, you know, that's true. Like, Jesus, the message of Jesus is we got to be desperate. And it's for the poor. It's for all of us. But it's also to, to topple the status quo. And it's the truth for every influencer. Every, and it's to turn upside down the things in our culture. If you start looking at our culture, like, there are, there are so many messages, so many gods, so many things that are set up as being the highest thing. But the message of the movement is that, no, Jesus is above all those things, and he reorders all of that. So they went on. We're going to keep reading. They moved on to the next city, and he, they're, they're, they start. Um, we're going to move, skip ahead to verse 20. Um, this is in Turkey now, modern-day Turkey. It's kind of confusing. 
because it was another city named Antioch, which was the same city they started out in, but that was Antioch in Syria, not Antioch in Turkey. But in verse, um, they go to this place, they start bringing the message, and I'm going to pick up kind of partway through. Um, they're given the history of how God had worked through the Israelites. And as we do this, I want to just kind of like redefine some terms that we have. I want to redefine things like e- eternal life and salvation. Things, if you have your notes, they're, they're written there. Um, and, and being raised from the dead. What, is, what do these things mean? So, Paul is speaking, or Paul, who was it? Yeah, Paul's speaking, I think. In verse 20, it says, all this took about 450 years. Talking about God delivering his people out of Egypt in the Old Testament, and then bringing them into the promised land, and driving out their enemies, and establishing a new nation in this land. And so, um, again, I just want to think about, that is in terms of this message of salvation. Salvation wasn't just, you can have a personal relationship with God, but it's that God is bringing his victory to the world. He is driving out our enemies. He's driving out every force that sets itself up against God and that oppresses people, that oppresses us personally. And he's bringing, salvation means healing. It means wholeness. It means the fullness of the life God intends for us. And so, yes, it's forgiveness of our sins, but it's not stopping there. It's restoring us to the fullness of the kind of life that God has for us. Um, so, all this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And every, this audience knew the history of Saul. In the Old Testament, they knew he was a failure of a king. Basically, he started out with a lot of potential, had a lot of talent, but he was unfaithful, and he was, was really a, a, a failure. Of, of a person, of a king. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So David, we read the Old Testament, basically it's a story of, you all, it's, we see the people who God used, but we also see their failures. And there's this constant, we're looking for the Messiah, we're looking for who's the person that God's going to send that's going to turn things around and set the world to rights. And at person after person, we see there's some good people who God uses, but they all fall way short of being that person. We see, like, even the, the greatest people, we see their warts, we see their failures, and they, they are not the Messiah that God has promised to come and, and set the world to rights. But David, David is the guy who comes the closest, probably. Like, he's the closest picture of what that king is supposed to be like. Although, we look at his life, he had some really big failures too. But he's, he's a picture, and, and God promised to David, one of your descendants will be the king who sets the world to rights. So, that's what he's talking about here. This man's offspring, God has brought to Israel as Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? This is John the Baptist who came before Jesus. I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So basically, it's reiterating this point that no one else is worthy. Nobody else could be that Messiah. Nobody else could be the leader to set the world to rights. But one of the descendants of David is he, and it's Jesus, 
who just has been on the scene recently. And what happened with him? Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. Again, I touched on what is salvation. It's restoring things to wholeness. Deliverance from enemies. Setting the world, the world to rights. Um, you know, I've, in, my, in the last year, for me, I have come to a greater personal understanding that the world and our lives and our bodies are so very, very broken. You know, just like seeing the, the health challenges that Reagan has gone through and just the brokenness, so many other things. I, it's been just up close, up close and personal. And I've also, just out of that, come to a just greater depth of, I think, agreement with the heart of God that the brokenness of the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And when we look at that, when we look at in our own lives, and when we look at our, our personal failures, when we look at our inability to, to shake habitual sin, when we look at health issues, I mean, I was helped working on our, our new ministry house a week ago, and I got poison ivy. And, God, it's been the last, it's just gotten worse and worse. It's progressively like, God, this stinking world is broken. <laughs> I, God, poison ivy is not the way the world was supposed to be. That is not how God designed it. But we live in a world that's, that's under a curse because of sin. And cancer, poison ivy, relational breakdowns, betrayal, cities, the inner cities, the suburbs, the politics, war. I mean, the, the world is so, 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 so very broke. And God looks at that world and he, he says, that's not the way I designed it to be. And I am in the business of restoring it. I am in the business of every single place where sin has brought negative effects. That is not what I intend, and I am in the process of setting things to rights. I will set things to rights, and I am setting things to rights. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but that's really part two of the message, is that the renewal of all things has begun. God, not only will Jesus set everything to rights, not only will God set everything to rights in the future, but he has begun setting everything to rights now through Jesus and through his people. And he, Paul's talking about this as, as we continue on here. Um, where am I? What did I read last? Verse 27, okay. Um, Verse 28 says, Though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. I'll just look at this phrase. If you want to remember one thing from today, remember more than one thing, but this is a good thing to remember. That I just, the last few months, I finally have been diving through this huge book that I've had on my shelf for like five years, because it's huge. <laughs> it's, you know, you don't just start a book like this unless, you know, it's a big book. 
but it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's, it's by N.T. Wright, who's a very influential theologian. Um, and he's all going into, what is the resurrection all about? And he goes, he goes into, what did ancient cultures believe about the afterlife? What does the Old Testament teach about life after death? What does the New Testament teach? What did people understand? What did the early, the first audience understand when they heard this message of this man Jesus being executed and then being raised back from the dead? And it's very interesting because I think we live in a culture that, you know, that, that message has been around for 2,000 years and it's easy for it to lose the potency in our mind. We don't hear it the same way that the first audience heard it. We, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you know, he rose from the dead. And what does that mean? I, was, I almost asked this question for your table discussion, but, you know, I, I, asked, I asked our, our daughter this the other day. You know, and I, what does this mean? I asked our kids, and I liked Angie's answer. She just said, it means Jesus, he's, he wins. God wins over everything. Like, nothing can beat God. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That is so true. And, you know, we have this instinctive kind of like, yeah, right? Jesus wins. The truth wins. God defeats everything. And, that's, that's true, but there's, there's a greater depth of understanding that they would have understood that we, we miss out on. And so, the, and seeing how the Jewish people thought about the afterlife and the idea of resurrection and how the Greeks thought about afterlife and the idea of resurrection helps us with that. So, Jewish people, they, for most of the Old Testament, there wasn't, it's very murky about what happens after death. The emphasis is really on this life. And when it talks about life after death, it talks more about this, the grave or Sheol or going to sleep. And there's, not, there's very little in the Old Testament spelling out. Like, it's the emphasis is on this life, this world, here and now. And, and you know, this world. People are put on the earth, and it's a, you know, God's purpose for the earth. But as you progress along, you see some, some, some hints in the Psalms, and especially in Daniel talks about this idea that some of those who sleep in the earth will rise. And David talks about, and it's quoted here in this this message, about how God's not going to let his holy ones decay. And so there's this idea that, and so towards the end of the Old Testament period, the Jewish people more and more were latching onto this. And I was like, wait, it sounds like there's this this promise of a resurrection of God's people who are going to be raised up. And even in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and if any of you come from Catholic backgrounds, that's the apocryphal books. Um, there were, there's more talk about this. And in just the writings and other books that were being written by, by Jewish teachers and prophets, there's more and more discussion and building upon this theology of, yeah, it seems that you know, God is going to raise the righteous at the end of history. And they'll be resurrected. And that'll be a time where the earth is, is fully restored to be the earth that God meant it to be. Um, so there was this belief. Now, there was still division, and you know, the Pharisees believed that. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection. They just thought this is all there was. But more and more, the Jewish people believed in that, that there was going to be a resurrection at the end of history. But, but nobody had thought of the idea that a, the Messiah would be resurrected before that time. Even though, actually, we, now we look back in Isaiah and some of the prophets are like, oh, yeah, it says that, like, He's going to live. You know, we can see it now, but they, were, they just couldn't see that. It was just such a crazy idea. It was beyond their grasp. That, and even when Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to do this, 
it says they couldn't understand. Their, their eyes, their hearts were, were unable to comprehend that reality. So nobody had imagined that a Messiah would, would be resurrected before the rest of the resurrection. Now to the Greeks, they, the idea of your body being resurrected was really foolish to them. Because, I mean, it's foolish, right? Anyway, it's scientifically, it's a silly idea. You die, like you can't be resurrected again. But also because their whole understanding was that the body is evil. And Plato had said that, you know, when you die, your soul escapes from the prison of your body. And so, life after death, your, your soul lives with the gods, and, you know, there was this idea of bliss and reward and idea of, you know, going into the heavenly dimension after you died. And so, the Greeks had the idea that, hey, your body's bad, but when you die, your soul escapes from that prison, and at least good people can have this, this blissful existence now. So, that's what you want. And why would you want to be resurrected? Because this world's so crummy, right? It's so broken. Our bodies are so messed up. Like, that's a crazy idea. And so, when this message begins to come, but God raised him from the dead, it was different than what anybody had imagined. And it would be more literally translated, God raised him out from among the dead was this scene that Jesus had gone into the realm of the dead with everybody who had died. But God raised him out from the dead. And the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is, or Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the, the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he is resurrected at the new body on earth, and that's a picture, that's the down payment of the resurrection process that has now begun. That everyone who believes the New Testament teaches is raised with Christ. We, something happens in us and our spirits are resurrected. And the resurrection begins in the world and everywhere where we go, new life, renewal can begin to happen. That should affect our relationships, our communities, our families, our cities, science, politics, Everything, and that's what's happened, actually, where the message of the gospel has come. It's brought renewal. And then one day, when Jesus comes back at the end of history, everybody who believed in Jesus, their bodies will be resurrected. And eternal life is not going up to heaven. Although, you know, until then, that's what happens. Believers go up to heaven to be with Jesus. But eternal life is the life of the ages to come. That's the more literal translation. It's not eternal, but it's the life of the ages. And so the life, the Bible talks more about heaven and earth merging together and there being a new earth and the earth being everything God intended it to be and us having new bodies that are completely resurrected, that are, there's, that are similarities and differences between our current bodies. So that's the idea, the picture of Eternal life and salvation and resurrection is really, if we look at it, a lot of times the ideas that we have are more like the Greeks. Like we think, like, oh, this earth's bad, our bodies are bad, we just need to escape that prison and then be spiritual beings floating with Jesus forever. But the picture, the message of the gospel is that no, God made people to be on the earth and to bring God's goodness into the earth. And as embodied beings, for eternity. And so this is the message that, 
that they're bringing here. Um, I just want to, I'll keep reading here. Um, verse 30, I'll read that again. God raised, oh, that's okay, verse 31. Well, let's say that. It's cool. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is that this isn't just an idea that someone pulled out of thin air or out of their, their mind or some spiritual encounter they had, but it was a historical event. Jesus, they're saying, hey, Jesus rose again and he appeared to many people, and they're still alive. You can go interview them. They're right here. We got hundreds of people who saw Jesus while he was on the earth and encountered him, talked with him, listened to him, touched him, ate with him. Like, this is a historical event that is scientifically, historically, you know, this is, this is based upon a, the resurrection. Even when I was in college, I took Western Civ class, which was basically, you could, you could call it how to attack the Bible 101. Like, that's basically what this was about. But when they came to the start of the Christian movement, they said, and then something happened. This Jesus was killed, and something happened. There was this idea of the resurrection, and basically they said, we have to admit in our textbook that something happened. There's no other way to get around the resurrection but that there was something that happened here. There's no other way this movement could have started unless, unless there was something. So, anyway, side note there. So he appeared. Uh, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. And that's the problem. You read the Old Testament. It's all about God restoring the earth. It's all about it's stories of, of commerce and agriculture and relationships and cities. It's, it's very earthy, actually. Like what God promised to, to our fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him out from among the dead, no more to return to corruption. And some, uh, you could say decay. That's the NIV. Other translations say decay. No more to, to have bodies that can decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption or decay. You know, it's interesting the, the Psalms, like this is a psalm that David wrote, and a lot of the Old Testament passages where it's prophesying about the Messiah, it's, it's hard to know if they're talking about themselves or about the Messiah. Because it seems like they go back and forth. And they're talking about themselves, but then they say something like, that couldn't be you. That, that says you didn't sin. Like, that, that, that's different, the different character here. But then it goes back to something that seems to be about them. And it's because... Because what the Messiah does, what Jesus does, changes our identity. And our identity and our quality of life, we can come into it because of what the Messiah does. And it's intermingled. And so even it says, well, you won't, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Some translations translate that capital H, holy, and capital one, O, holy, like that's one, like that's Jesus, the Holy One. And sometimes it's little H, little O, because it's, no, it's just like the followers of Jesus. You won't let your holy ones see corruption. And it's true about both, because Jesus overcame corruption and decay. That same resurrection power comes to his, his followers, and it enters our life now, and it ultimately will, will transform our bodies when he returns. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, 
and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Okay. The renewal of all things has begun. Jesus is the king of the whole world, and the renewal of all things has begun. Man, you get that in our, in our hearts and our minds. That changes things. That changes things. That's not a Christianity that's just about, like, what happens to me only when I die, but it's, it's now. But, man, it sure matters. Like, after I die, that's something really to think about, too. And, like, that's really where God brings to fulfillment who he made us to be and what he made the earth and heaven to be together. Um, I, it's interesting how he ends this message. He says this. He says, he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. saying, look, listen, what I'm telling you is so amazing, so beyond belief. I mean, you think the, the, um, what are they, the Taliban with their belief about 70 virgins, like that's really crazy. But like what I'm telling you, this is really crazy too. That the bodies of the believers are going to be resurrected and God is going to renew the earth and God's starting that process now through Jesus. Like that, like there's some cognitive dissonance there. That's hard to really believe that that could be true. So be careful. Be, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished. What I'm doing, it's, it's hard to believe because it's, it's so amazing. But the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that this message is true? Do you believe that Jesus is the king over everything and that the renewal of all things has begun? Um, and so that's, you know, really the question for us is, do I believe this message? Do you believe this message? How is it impacting our lives? You know, the starting point is, what do I believe about Jesus? Is he my king? Is he the, the ruler of my life who I've bowed my knee to and who I'm bowing my knee to and saying, Jesus, you, you are my king. I will follow you over every other person, every opinion, every, every whim of culture. You're the one I'm going to follow because, because you're, you're my king. That's, the, that's, that's how we enter this thing. Um, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's the question for us. Do I believe that God raised him from the dead? Raised him out from the dead? And do I confess that he's my King? He's my Lord? Um, but then, you know, also like, how, how does this play out in our lives? I love how it plays out in the, the life of the people in Acts. This last few verses of this chapter, um, verse 46, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside, this, there were people who rejected it and opposed them. Many of the religious leaders were in that category. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. It's interesting. It says you're unworthy of eternal life because you thrust this message aside. How do we know if we're 
worthy of the life of the ages to come, the age to come, it's if we believe this message. If we really believe this message, then we're worthy of that eternal life that God wants to bring to us. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This message was spreading like wildfire. But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So there's always opposition to King Jesus. There's always opposition to this message. But they shook off the dust from their feet against, against them and went on to the next town of Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know, what I love about this is that these men and women's understanding of the message of Jesus is king and the renewal of all things has begun gave them something on the inside that was stronger than anything they faced in the world. You know, this whole, this whole book of Acts is one of intense opposition and persecution from the strongest authorities of their day. And, you know, they're, they're driven out, they're mocked, they're stoned, they're killed. And somehow, the message they believe is, you know, that's okay. Because if we believe, no matter what we go through, even death leads to the furthering of God's life coming to us and to the world. And so the more we're like, actually the more we're facing opposition and difficulty in our life, the more we're participating in the renewal of all things. And so they're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. You're like, they're insane. Like, that doesn't make sense. But there's this total paradigm change. That no, God uses opposition. He uses death. He uses difficulty. For those who trust in him and follow him, it doesn't matter how intense it is. That only furthers. You know what's interesting in Afghanistan? I was talking to someone about this, and we were talking about the difficulty of the whole situation, and they said, well, what? And I, I gave my opinion that, you know, honestly, I, I think it was a mistake for us to try to set up a new government there in the first place. Um, not to be like hindsight's twenty twenty, but I've thought that for a long time. I think that never works in history. But the person I was talking to said, yeah, but what were we supposed to do? Like, you know, they were attacking us. There was 9-11. What were we supposed to do? And I said, how about send missionaries? And the person I was talking to scoffed at that idea. He was like, oh, what are you, you know, you going to do? Like, you know, send missionaries? But what's crazy is that the place in the world today, the fastest growing place in the world where the church is growing, the message of King Jesus is growing today, is Iran. If you want to see an incredible story of that, watch the documentary um, Sheep Among Wolves about what this looks like. And the second fastest growing place where the message of King Jesus is growing is next door to Iran in where? Afghanistan. This, nothing can stop this message. No difficulty, no opposition, no cultural norms. This is the message that changes things. And so, question is, do we believe it and, and are we living it out? So, I just want to pray for us and pray that God would help us in that. Lord, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your death and your resurrection and thank you for what you bring us into.